Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Deborah Pearson is a writer, performer, and producer. She makes and tours solo theater pieces and works collaboratively as a dramaturg for companies including Made in China and Action Hero. She is an associate artist with Volcano Productions in Canada. In 2007, she founded the multi-award-winning organization Forest Fringe, which she also co-directs. And she also hosts a podcast, The Whole Darn Thing. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on the show. So I always like to start these conversations by just getting some background, and, and we don't have to take a lot of time with that, uh, but feel free to take this wherever you'd like. But in your case, I'm sort of curious to know which came first for you, sort of the chicken or the egg. So did the writing come first or did the performing come first? I think that they happen kind of concurrently, but it's an interesting question because like my history of writing and my history of performance, I guess like any creative person's like starts in childhood. So, you know, I used to act uh, in like little plays and I played the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz when I was nine years old. I, I used to do like acting, I guess. And, uh, and then I also would write. I was really interested in writing. I remember the first play I wrote, I think I was also around, I was around the same age that I was when I played the Scarecrow. I was nine years old. And I'd seen an episode of Married with Children that was sort of a takeoff on um, the uh, film noir genre. Okay. But I'd never seen a film noir before. <laughs> it was like Al Bundy was playing like a gumshoe and there was like a femme fatale and stuff. But I didn't understand that it was like a satire of a well-known genre. I thought the Married with Children had like invented that and I thought it was amazing. So then I tried to write my own kind of like film noir play based off of that episode of Married with Children. Wow. And I would make the other kids rehearse it at lunch hour. Um, and actually the, the person who I cast as a detective is now a professional screenwriter and actress. Wow. So I obviously had a very good eye when I was nine years old, uh, but we never put on the play due to creative differences. Um, but <laughs> yeah, so I'd say I was, I mean, I, I've wanted to write since I can, I don't know, since I can remember understanding what writing was. Fascinating. Uh, yeah. yeah, it wasn't always necessarily that I wanted to write plays. I think I was interested in writing prose or writing a novel or whatever, but definitely writing has always been a passion of mine. Um, and I've also just like loved acting and enjoyed acting for a long time. I don't really act anymore, but I do perform my own stuff. Um, I'd say that actually, oddly, the performing that I do is probably more informed by public speaking, which I used to do a lot of. I also started doing that when I was about 10 years old. Uh, and I did a lot of that when I was like 12. I was on the debating team and doing public speaking competitions and stuff. And uh, and I'd say that probably I draw more on my experience public speaking and debating when I'm performing as myself on stage than I do on my experience acting. Because it's kind of weird to act as yourself, you know. Tell, tell me what one does in a, in a public speaking um, competition like or, uh, or demonstrate. Like what, what does that mean exactly? What, what does that entail? Uh, well, in high school, I don't know if this was just a Canadian thing. I feel like this is probably something that happened in the States, too. I'm Canadian uh, from Toronto. And when I was in high school, 
we used to have a public speaking competition. Actually, public speaking competition started when I was even much younger. When I was a, from when, the time I was about 10 years old, we had a public speaking competition that was in French. I was in French immersion. And I think it was called like the Concours. Fuck, I can't remember. Sorry, I'm not supposed to swear. Oops. <laughs> no, you, you can totally swear. Not a problem. Oh, I can swear. <laughs> uh, can't really remember what it was called in French. It was called like concours, which means competition, but I can't remember the rest. Anyway, there was we we were required to write a speech and and perform it in French from the time we were ten years old. And I wrote a speech about Canada that was ten minutes long and awful because I was silent for most of it. <laughs> I was terrified. I was terrible at it. And uh, I was so bothered by being terrible at it that I then wrote another speech the next year and just huh. practiced like so much. Okay, so, that I so, would, uh, so, so essentially, like speeches, and and, and yeah, were you were you in, uh, encouraged to write your own speeches, or were you giving like also like famous speeches or or monologues and things? No, or? we were pretty much always encouraged to write our own speeches. I only ever had to give somebody else's speech. Uh, I, I did public speaking competitions right up until university. So I think I had to give someone else's speech in one round of a public speaking competition I did at university. Um, and I'd always do really well in the competitions. Like I'd usually either win or be a finalist. But uh, my ex-boyfriend in high school was like a prodigiously good public speaker. Like he had this really raspy voice like Tom Waits. He was just like a natural kind of stand-up comedian. And from the time he decided to start public speaking, it was just brutal. I couldn't win a competition. I would always come second to him in front of the entire school. And it was like awful. So when I was at university, it was such a relief that he wasn't there. <laughs> he was taking the marbles out of my mouth because he's like unbeatable. You can't beat him. In fact, he gave the um, the speech at our wedding. He was like my man of honor. And the best man then followed him and completely like ruined his speech because he was so nervous following. I should have remembered like you shouldn't let anybody follow this guy. <laughs> and because... so so what does he do now? I mean, is he using the skill or? Oh, it's so annoying. It makes drives me crazy. He's not using the skill. He's um. He is, he's working in policy, basically, for the government. So I guess he does write speeches and stuff for the government sometimes. And he was, like, valedictorian of his master's class. And he, everybody asks him to do a speech at weddings. Like, mm -hmm. he's, like, the go-to guy. Even if you barely know him, you'd probably ask him to do a speech at the wedding. He's, like, <laughs> so good. Uh, but, yeah, he doesn't, I, I think he wasn't particularly interested in, uh, in doing it professionally. He did do it for something called Trampoline Hall, which uh, Sheila Haiti, who wrote, um, uh, had... She wrote that book. So it's called something like "How to Be Happy" or "How to Be Good." Okay, it was I don't know. Quite it. A book in the United States, um, but she runs it with this other guy named Misha. They've been running it for a long time, and uh, and so it's a situation where people who aren't professional public speakers give a speech on a subject on which they're not an expert. Hmm. Um, and so he did that, which is like a very big event in Toronto. And his speech is actually now going to be on the podcast of Trampoline Hall as one of the like best speeches that they've done in Trampoline Hall. Mm -hmm. So he goes on to continue to be unbeatable, <laughs> even, <laughs> even if he refuses to do it professionally, but it's fine. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, um, so that's a little bit about your background and so tell me how you get from, uh, growing up in Toronto and, and doing these things to then now you're based in the UK. Uh, I, there's a lot of steps in between there, obviously, but, uh, I understand you're working on a PhD now in, um, 
uh, in narrative and contemporary performance. Yeah, I actually just finished my Viva, which is like the British equivalent of a defense. Okay. Um, and I passed with minor corrections. So that means that I'm, I'm now kind of like right in the heat of the corrections. Yeah, it was a really interesting experience doing a PhD. I feel like if you can, I'm, as a professional artist, and if you can do a PhD and get funding, it's like such a privilege and such a gift to just slow down your practice a little bit, to be able to spend a few years reading and learning and focusing on some of the questions that your artistic life you know, is maybe preoccupied with anyway, but doing it in a more sort of formalized and institutional setting. Hmm. I, I loved it. I would really recommend. It's it's obviously very frustrating at times and not easy, mm -hmm. but I think it's a really worthwhile thing to do. So uh, what is exactly um, a contemporary performance uh, in entail? Like what, what sort of degree program is that is that theater contemporary performance or could it be you know like at the university of chicago for instance they have like time arts which is sort of performance art but also incorporates sort of sound and anything that would that takes place in uh, a time scale yes um, what what is what is this course of study uh contemporary performance it's very interesting that you're asking me that question john because that is uh, one of the corrections that I have to attend to hmm. in my PhD is I have to define theater, live art, performance art, contemporary performance, drama, and sort of, I don't know, delineate what's in common in those categories and where they differ. Uh, I would say contemporary performance is a really, really broad church. Like it's a very broad way of describing work that deals with liveness in some way. Um, and I kind of specifically use a very broad term like that so that I can talk about plays, so that I can talk about performance art. Um, I don't really talk about any sound pieces, but I do talk about John Morin, who's like definitely a sort of sound-based artist. And uh, yeah, it, it pretty much means any kind of work that probably, given the term contemporary that was made, I don't know, roughly in the last 15 to 20 years, that deals with what it means to be present, you know, what it means to be live and kind of draws the audience's attention to the liveness and, and to their presence. Hmm. So it's something that really can only exist in the ephemeral in the moment that it's happening. And I suppose that's what makes it different from a painting, for example, or uh, a piece of pre-recorded music or a film. And so what, uh, I'm just curious, what drew you to this particular program or, or if to the larger sort of why, why go to the UK? What was it that, what was the draw there? The reason I went to the UK initially wasn't for my PhD. I've been over in the UK since 2005. Okay. So I've been here for nearly 11 years. In October, it'll be 11 years. I was in Edinburgh for the first year and then I moved to London in 2006. I moved to London for my master's, but I initially moved to the UK because I was, I think actually, honestly, because I was interested in a much more experimental way of looking at theater and looking at performance that wasn't that widespread in Toronto, where I lived. And there were a couple of companies, but really a couple. There were probably two, two to three companies or artists that work that way. Now it's definitely larger, like the scene is larger in Toronto than it was when I was younger. But I was working for Volcano, who I'm an associate artist with, as you pointed out in your introduction. Mm -hmm. And I was telling the artistic director, Ross Manson, what kind of work I was interested in. This was when I was about 22 years old. And he said, you know, you, have, you should go to Europe. Like, it's like 
clear that you should be in Europe because the kind of work you're interested in, there's like, there's a lot of it in Europe and it's very, very advanced there. And I remember him saying like, Toronto's so busy that if you come back after a year, like probably no one will notice <laughs> that you've gone. <laughs> and he was like, I'm not saying that to be mean. That's just like how people are. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's probably, and it's probably true. Um, but it actually really worked out. It was, a, it was really good advice. I went over to Edinburgh and then I applied for this master's. And it's true that in the UK, there is a really thriving, you know, live art scene that I've been very fortunate to be able to sort of become a part of. And it just ended up being the right place for me to be. I mean, it's it's funny because it never feels sort of overly small. That's the one thing about the British like theater scene. It, it always feels to me like the right size to keep you inspired, to like keep you on your toes. You're always learning about new artists that you didn't know about before or the artists that you do know are always kind of like surprising you in some way or making something unusual in some way. And I think that that's useful. It's it's also somehow small enough that it can feel like you've got a community, but it's large enough that it doesn't start to feel claustrophobic or kind of static or stagnant. Yeah. It's interesting that you've had some, uh, it sounds like uh, you were mentioning someone in Toronto sort of saying, you know, you should, your work sort of fits in with this scene in, in Europe. Um, it's, it's interesting for me because... Uh, as a, you know, a classically trained musician who got interested in sort of performance art and uh, particularly in my real tiny, I mean, you want to talk about a tiny, tiny corner of a, of a discipline, um, this sort of speaking percussion thing that, that I've gotten uh, interested in over the last, you know, 10, 12 years. Uh, I mean, it, there's a very few handful of pieces, uh, you know, so so those of us that are engaged in it are sort of working with uh, composers and we're working with um, performance artists to create these kinds of pieces. Mm. And uh, there, there really isn't, to my knowledge, okay, there really isn't like a scene where that happens. And what was really interesting when I found your work, it's like, you know, if you had, a, I don't mean to be, belittle at all, but like if, if, I was doing your piece with maracas, <laughs> you know, that's basically what I do. So I'm looking at this that's going, great. wow, this is terrific, you know? Uh, so so I identify with the kind of work that you're doing in a way, I mean, I come from a completely different world, but that to me makes sense, what you're doing and uh, what you're, that kind of world that you're describing. So I'm, I'm very curious to know who are the other people who are inspiring you uh, that do the kind, like similar kinds of things to what you do? Um, mm. You know, I'd be curious to know that because I'm sort of just dis sort of discovering this whole world and coming from this other place. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's funny because I think that there are like a couple of different ways in which I get inspired. So one thing that has always inspired me is just a kind of opening up of the rules around what theater is and what theater can be. And so I think that oddly then the people who inspire me, maybe their work isn't that much like mine, but I feel like their work takes a similarly like free and flexible approach to form in a way that I find exciting. I'd say that that probably actually started like that discovery around a freedom around the rules um, of how you could approach theater and narrative and stuff um, probably started for me in 2008, the second year that I was doing Forest Fringe. And we had programmed a bunch of young artists from Battersea Art Center. Uh, and these were people who I kind of go on to work with 
for, I don't know, since then, really. Um, but I was sort of encountering their work for the first time, and it really blew my mind. So uh, Action Hero, like I love, you know, I remember I saw a work in progress of Watch Me Fall, and I was just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> but I really loved it, and I continue to love what they do. I love it. I love the clarity of, like, their artistic voice, and I love the way that they don't take the audience's role for granted. They're always thinking about like, what is the audience's role in this piece? That's so amazing to me and so important. And I love that they don't take the form of the piece for granted. I think that's really exciting. Um, I really loved uh, Ed Rapley was doing some really interesting work at the time. He was doing these very short pieces, uh, like one minute pieces. He had one piece where you would go into a room and he, and he'd just have his back to you. And he'd say like, see, like try to see my face and then you basically just have to like run around the room while he dodged you and you wouldn't get to see his face. Or you had I love it. It's amazing. Or you had another piece where you would just like go to this weird room and then he'd have his eyes closed and he'd open his eyes and just say the first word that came to his mind when he looked at you. <laughs> the, the word was Jiminy in my case. <laughs> Jiminy means. Um, but you know, I really liked, I really liked just how weird that was, yeah. but also like how interesting and, and engaging. And Lucy Ellenson did a piece where she, it was an intimate piece for about 10 audience members at a time where she was sort of trying to mentally prepare herself for her own funeral in front of the 10 people. And it was really moving. Like it was really, really moving. Um, and she was speaking with us very directly and in a very sort of like casual and honest, not actorly at all, but, but sort of under, we understood that there was something kind of constructed or artificial about the situation, but also something very real in the sense that everybody does die at some point. And that is something that we all have to come to terms with in some way. So I think seeing those pieces in 2008 really, really affected me and affected the way that I thought about what theater could be and made me feel like I could be a lot freer in terms of what kinds of pieces I was making and what I thought of as, as theater for my own work. Yeah. Um, but then there are other people who I've just always like liked. I mean, probably the Canadian playwright Daniel McIver really started me on wanting to write theater at all uh, because Daniel McIver writes plays they're much more conventional than the work I make now, I'd say, or not much more, but they're more conventional than the work I make now and probably more conventional than the work I would program now. But they're very confusing. <laughs> That's what I really like about them. They're very, you just sit there being confused until you're not confused, until it sort of becomes clear. Mm -hmm. And I became very addicted to that feeling of being confused in the theater, but excited, like confused and excited at the same time. Um, and I also really love a lot of kind of quite experimental filmmakers that I saw at university um, and sound artists. Like I love Janet Cardiff's work. I think her work's really interesting. And uh, she's like a sound artist. I saw her exhibition with George Miller, who's like her artistic partner at the Fruit Market Gallery a few years back. And uh, there was one piece in particular called Road Trip in which they basically it's an installation where they show a bunch of slides of a road trip that George Miller's grandparents took uh, sometime in the 1960s. And they, and you can hear their voices narrating the slides and a sort of narrative becomes clear over the course of the piece that I think is really fantastic. You can actually just Vimeo Janet Cardiff, George Miller road trip and watch the whole thing, but it's obviously there's nothing like being there and seeing it in the gallery. And I also really love a documentary Oh, there's another theater piece by Simon Bowes 
called Where We Live and What We Live For with his dad, and that actually had his dad in it. That totally blew my mind as well. Um, and then, yeah, there was a, uh, a documentary called Linda Joy. There was an NFB documentary that I saw when I was about 18 years old <laughs> that I'd say also had a huge impact on me. Um, and then I also really love Young Jean Lee's work. So I have a few different people. Daniel Kitson is, has become, you know, has become a bit of an influence on me later on. And I got to work with him on my most recent piece. So that was very exciting. And, uh, and then Tim Mitchell's and Force Entertainment have also become an influence on me kind of later on. So yeah, it's always, I don't know. There's always stuff that's, in, that's influencing me. Um, your replacement have a piece called, uh, winners and losers, which is great. Mammalian diving reflex, also a Canadian company who do, um, actually the first piece of theirs I heard about that I found really exciting was a piece where you just met up at a subway station and then you tried to get, I think it was called home tours. You would just try to get different strangers to give you a tour of their house, <laughs> show up at their house <laughs> with a group and try to get strangers to let you in and give you a tour of their house. Wow. I just, I mean, I heard about that before I knew anything about their other work or before I even really understood what form they were working in. I found that really exciting. So I guess that's like a couple of touchstones, but you know, it's a nice thing. I get to see a lot of work, so there are always new things feeding in. Um, but I suppose it's that thing, like the the bands you liked in high school, or sort of the bands that like you always like. Mm -hmm. I think that it's like those artists that you discover early, or those pieces of work that you discover early do kind of stick with you forever yeah. in a way that's sort of unshakable. I guess. Yeah, that ma that makes a lot of sense. Well, this is a terrific list. I, I was sub taking some notes as you were uh, talking, so I that's one of the really cool things about this podcast is I get so many interesting, you know, asides as well and, and, and threads to follow up on after our conversation. So thank you for that. That's, that's really yep. terrific list of, of interest sounds like really interesting things. So, um, there are probably two more things. I can, I, can I just sneak two more things into your list? Please. Um, uh, there's a piece called Berlin love tour by a company called play group that they don't do anymore, which is a tour of any city that isn't Berlin and it's a tour of things that no longer exist in Berlin that I thought was amazing that I saw in Dublin years back and there's also a piece called John Morin and his neighbor Sowry by John Morin which also isn't around anymore but I think you can watch video of it but the video really doesn't do it justice because he basically like records things and then has himself and a dancer lip sync to those recordings of real life situations in sort of perfect sync um, that blew my mind. Anyway, those were two things where I was like, oh, you got it. If I, if I leave those out of the list, then I'm doing a disservice to the list. Great, great. Uh, terrific. Thank you so much. Um, and there's something that you said in there that I, I had made a note that definitely wanted to talk about, which is this, the concept of, of narrative and your, your interest in that and sort of the thread that that runs through in your work. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to talk about that. We might just uh, take a slight detour and come back to it because you yeah. mentioned also the, the forest fringe. And I'm very curious about that and, and want to find out uh, a little bit more about what that is. Uh, is it, it's, so it's like a, its own fringe festival? Is that what, what it is? Or? Yeah, it's, a, it's basically, I mean, it's a couple of things. So Forest Fringe is like a partnership between myself and Andy Field and Ira Brand, who are both also artists. Um, and together and I've, I've started calling it sort of like an artist-led curation collective because really what we do is we try to find situations in which we can curate other people in our community into 
in different ways. So like we took over a venue at the Fusebox Festival uh, two years ago and brought over different British artists who were like in our community to put on work there during the festival. But the way that we started and the thing that we're probably best known for is we've run a venue at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival every year for the last 10 festivals. So we had our 10th festival this year. We actually won a significant contribution award this, we just won it about two days ago from the Total Theatre Awards, which I joked was like the Lifetime Achievement Award. It's sort of like, <laughs> they're sort of ready, you know, you know you're old when. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got it. Contribution award, but it's, it's very exciting. Um, and yeah, pretty much what we do is we is we aren't part of the official Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Um, we just rock up in Edinburgh at the same time of year as the official Edinburgh Fringe Festival is going on, and we put on our own kind of like miniature festival in a venue. It used to be at the Forest Cafe, and we started as an offshoot of the Forest. As a, we started basically as the Forest Cafe's fringe venue, and then the Forest Cafe lost their theater space. So now we're at the out of the Blue Drill Hall, which is in Leith, a little bit further out from the center of Edinburgh. And uh, yeah, we put on a festival that lasts about ten days. And that has like a series of artists in it. And we try to prioritize work that might struggle to come to Edinburgh in any other situation. Uh, so definitely in 2008, that thing of like that Ed Rapley's work with like the one minute pieces and stuff would have been a perfect example of something that would really struggle to find a home in Edinburgh without something like Forest Fringe. Um, but it's basically... Yeah, we basically try to find a home for risk and experimentation at the Fringe Festival, which is usually a very commercial and expensive festival to take part in. So our venue is free for artists to perform in, and it's also free for audience members to come to. Uh, at the end, we ask for donations that then get split 50-50 between our venue, which is like a charity, a year-round charity in Edinburgh, it's sort of an artist studio place, and, uh, and between the artists themselves. Um, and we don't get paid to do the Edinburgh Fringe Festival programming. We just do it because we kind of recognize that it's important to people and that it's probably an, an important thing to keep doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it goes, it's like it, it's happened every August in some form since 2007. Oh. So um, that's what it is. Okay, I guess. great, great. Well, I'd, I'd seen the website. And uh, by the way, I should mention that you want to mention your website, any of the things that we've been talking about, the Forest Fringe and some of the other things people might want to follow up on. And certainly when we get to talking about some of your work, uh, I thought the website, your website was really great. You could really get a sense of all of these things and pieces. Uh, your website is, remind me. It's forestfringe.co.uk. Okay, so people can go and, and check that out. Yeah, yeah. And also my personal website is DebraPearson.com. Very easy. Great. Uh, so let's go back now and uh, follow through this thread of, of narrative and your interest in that. And then hopefully that will pivot into talking about some specific pieces. But in your, you know, we mentioned earlier in, in your bio, you, you talk about on your website that you're studying this PhD, and we, we talked about that. And one of the things that uh, you note in there is the nature of narrative in contemporary mm. performance. And uh, you also said that you're interested in, in this idea of intimacy. And I think both of those things, as I, as I look through, you know, over these weeks of uh, look through the, your pieces and things, I, I definitely can see those two aspects uh, reflected in different ways. I wonder how you think about 
narrative uh, specifically, because that seems to be a, a big focus in your work and also this podcast that, that we mentioned earlier. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about narrative and what that means for you. Yeah, I think of narrative as a cognitive structure. So I think of it as basically being the structure by which we understand or process any event, right, that has happened to us. It's I, So I actually think of narrative as something that we kind of can't get away from, no matter how hard we try. It's the way in which we look back on a thing and kind of demarcate it from the endless march of time as being an event that had a beginning, middle, and end. So even if you looked... You know, if you looked back on being in high school, there's probably a narrative for you retrospectively that you impose on having been in high school, a way that you think about high school as having its beginning, middle and end. Um, or if you look back, you know, and then it and then it works on a much smaller scale, too. Like, so if we look back on this conversation, we'll both have like an understanding of what its beginning, middle and end were. So it's really like it really comes down to how we process an event in retrospect. Um, and that event can sometimes be something quite large, like people can try to tell their life stories or their life narratives, or it can be something a more like medium length, like a year of your life, or it could be, uh, or a relationship, you know, the duration of a relationship, or it could be um, a day, you know, like a really nice day that you had. Um, and I'm interested in then that being a sort of inevitable thing that we end up doing as human beings in order to just make sense of the chaos of consciousness and our existence. Um, there are then kind of when there are invented or fictional narratives conventions that tend to crop up and that may have something to do with the way that we process our own, like maybe they would have happened if whatever, we weren't watching films and television and plays and all that stuff all the time. Um, or, maybe they wouldn't have. Maybe they're actually kind of imposed on us by by the fictional narratives that we're so frequently privy to. And some of those preoccupations that I would say, they're just like, it's almost like the emotional or intellectual baggage that comes up when you're thinking about narrative would be conflict. That's one of the things that I focus on in my PhD um, would be for um, certainly when you're going to see a play represent or, or a piece of theater or a piece of performance representation, which is the question of whether or not this is really happening or this is like a pre-rehearsed thing that is happening or it's a recreation of a thing that once happened and endings like the idea that it has to end or resolve in some way. So basically my PhD is split up into a chapter on representations, a chapter on conflict and a chapter on endings. And then I talk about the ways in which more experimental and less conventionally structured performance, uh, how we, can use those preoccupations or like that kind of intellectual baggage around those things uh, to our advantage, how we can do something more interesting with them. And I talk about other theater pieces that have sort of zeroed in on exactly those preoccupations to do something more structurally unusual and more sort of self-aware. Wow. Fantastic. So I'm curious to know then how this concept, maybe you could, uh, maybe we could choose one piece or something that you're working on now of how this sort of thing turns up for you as a creator. Like, how do you put these concepts to work in your own pieces? Well, uh, the future show is a perfect example. So the future show came about from a definition of narrative that I read in H. Porter Abbott's Cambridge Introduction to Narrative, which was that, and actually you can find this definition, like this definition goes back and back and back all the way to Aristotle, um, to Aristotle's poetics, which is that 
narrative is the representation of an event. In Aristotle's Poetics, it's, he talks about it as the mimesis of a praxis, and both the thing is only one in 10 words in ancient Greek actually have a direct translation into English. Mimesis and praxis both happen to be words that don't have a direct translation, but they're frequently translated as representation for mimesis and event or action for praxis. So there's this like continual thing since Aristotle that like a narrative is a representation of an event. And I found that word representation kind of interesting or challenging because it's like representation. So there's a suggestion that whatever is being presented is it somehow lives in the past. You know, it's like a it's you're presenting something now that is a recreation of something that already happened. And I wondered what would happen if you tried to do a relatively conventional piece of theater, say a monologue that was telling a story or purporting to tell a story that was relatively well structured or structured in ways that we would find satisfying from like a conventional plot perspective, but that was telling the story of something that was about to happen as opposed to something that had already happened. And so that was how I thought of the idea of telling the story of the rest of my life, starting from the end of the performance, because I thought actually wouldn't it complicate it more if you pretended that that piece was autobiographical and was true. Um, and so then it became a thing where it had to be me performing it. Um, so that was how the future show came about. It came about for me, like fundamentally questioning this idea of representation as being uh, important to narrative. Fascinating. Uh, that that was one of the pieces that I had earmarked that I wanted to talk about, and it was certainly one that definitely captured my imagination. Uh, time is something that I've also, as a creative person, um, wrote about and and uh, and worked with. Uh, I have a piece of mine um, for it's for the instruments is snare drum, but it's for spoken, you know, uh, speaking percussionist playing the snare drum. And it's about the concept of uji, which is a, a Zen, a ancient Zen word um, from the Zen, ancient Zen master Dogen. And he wrote this tome of a book called the Shobogenzo. And one of the chapters is called uji, and it's about time. And what mm -hmm. he says is basically that time is totally inseparable from your existence. Anyway, the piece that I did was uh, kind of how there is, you know, we're experiencing this present moment, and I told a story, uh, speaking of narrative, uh, of uh, sitting here in my studio and hearing a bird outside and, and realizing that the bird and I are in, you know, at that moment could never be recreated. It was a woodpecker that, yeah. you know, pecked, and that was it. And so I tell this story and say later on in the piece that that could never be recreated. As You know, we're in different places that moment is gone. It was just then. Now I can think about it. Anyway, just sort of sort of uh, about that thing. All of that to say, your piece really resonated with me and fascinating to tie it to this whole concept now of narrative and understand sort of where you're coming from. Uh, f totally fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I'm really, I, actually, one of the things I should say that I was influenced by not so much for that piece, but for my other piece, uh, Like You Were Before, which I also showed at Fusebox um, last year. But funnily, that, that's like a really old piece that I just basically resuscitated for because I said I would. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, I retired it, and then I said I would bring it back after five years, and so I, I did. I kind of kept that promise to my past self. But uh, I was really influenced by a Derrida um, clip on YouTube called The Science of Ghosts 
pretty sure it's called the science of ghosts or it's, is it called the science of ghosts? Uh, yeah, I think it's called the science of ghosts. Anyway, it's, if you put in ghosts and Derrida into YouTube, you can see it. It's an interview for a documentary that I've never seen with a young woman in the 1980s talking to Derrida. It was a bit of like a silver fox at the time. And she asks him like, do you believe in ghosts? And he says like, I don't know. That's a funny question it's weird because you're recording me. I actually feel like you're asking a ghost if he believes in ghosts because we're having what feels like, you know, in the present moment, a, an improvised conversation to go on film. But I'm aware of the fact that it's being recorded and that basically I'm creating a ghost right now of my present self. <laughs> and, you know, he's like, and that's what film is when it's at its most interesting. It's like a record of ghosts. Um, and I, found that really beautiful and it's fun and I sort of as you were talking about the woodpecker and I was thinking like god there's something so interesting about talking on Skype with like a person mm -hmm. <laughs> in yeah. Texas who's in a different time zone yeah. to where I am right now and being aware of the fact that you know you may or may not use this in a recording <laughs> later um, but yeah there is something there's there's something so endlessly fascinating to me about thinking about time yeah. and much of my work I think my best work has been about time probably like yeah, like you were before, and the future show, we're in like a double bill at Battersea Arts Center last year called Time Pieces, which where I had to show about the past, and then there was an interval, and then I had to show about the future. And now I've got this new piece, History, 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 which is about how we reconcile our relationship with large-scale time, with history, basically, and like political historical events. And that feels, again, like a sort of further iteration of those same themes, maybe like a part that I didn't touch upon in the other, in the more personal pieces um but yeah you can kind of just keep going with time there's so much there yeah and particularly thinking about the future like the future show started as that thing of interrogating narrative and representation and then it became a piece that was like about anxiety and mortality and uh yeah and like ephemerality and so many and just how much we can plan and how much we can't plan and uncertainty and it just sort of turned into something else like that very simple gesture actually which was useful opened out into a much larger like started to point at much larger things than the initial idea uh which was nice i yeah. think that's like i think that's when you know you're onto a good idea is when it starts very simple and then actually if you follow it through it starts to become quite complicated yeah yeah that makes sense uh, well, I'm glad you mentioned this other piece because that was another thing that I had earmarked. So it's a good transition to maybe talk a little bit more about this one because this one really captured my imagination. It's called History, History, History. And essentially what I understand is that it's a documentary film that, that's narrated live. And yeah. first, that's an amazing idea. And I wish I had <laughs> thought of it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to think about it some more and figure out how I can do that. Uh, yeah. Because that seems like a really great idea. Uh, so you want to talk a little bit, you, you mentioned the piece, but maybe you want to uh, go into that a little more? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was funny, because the thing of it being a documentary narrated live only became clear to me once the piece was finished. For a long time, I didn't know what to call it. And then actually, I was making the trailer for it. And I realized that that was what it was. <laughs> it was a documentary that was being narrated live. And uh, and that's fine. I mean, quite an experimental documentary, I'd yeah. say. But like kind of an experimental documentary that's where like my life presence is important to it. Um, and it's nice to think about it that way because maybe I could – I always feel like it, it actually could play quite well at film festivals or whatever. I just don't know – 
where to take it right now. I'm trying to figure that out yeah. um, in terms of how to tour it. But it is a piece that started with a film that, I mean, it's a story that I've actually been working on for a long time because I don't know if I should like reveal this. There are a lot of reveals in the piece, but probably, you know, I don't know. I guess not that many of your listeners will probably get to see the piece. Uh, but it's um, it started with a film that my grandfather acted in in the 1950s. Uh, my mom's Hungarian, and she came over as a Hungarian refugee in 1956 with her family. She was seven years old. And um, there's just this kind of story around my maternal grandfather, who was a relatively successful film actor in Hungary in the 1950s, and who had to leave as a result of the revolution, and who then tried to come back. And it was like, it's just a story I've been fascinated by for a long time. Um, not least because my grandfather, because there's always been like a sense that it was okay for me to pursue a creative life because of my grandfather. Like, even though I didn't know him very well, when I got into theater school, for example, like my grandmother called me and she was as excited as if I'd gotten into medical school or something. You know, it was so exciting to her that I'd gotten into theater school or when I would, you know, there was always a sort of like encouragement that I should pursue this thing. Uh, so that was so, and I think part of it was to do with the fact that my grandfather had done it, um, you know, whatever, many, many years beforehand. Um, but I became a little bit obsessed with this film. And then as I kept researching the film, I found that the history of the film actually stretched way past just a personal story for my family. And it was, uh, the film was actually quite significant in Hungarian politics in the time, because it was a film that was meant to come out at a cinema in Hungary called the Corvin Cinema uh, in November. And a week before, or about 10 days before it was meant to come out, the Hungarian Revolution happened. And the revolutionary fighters chose that cinema as their headquarters. So the cinema uh, actually got destroyed by the Russians when they decided to quell the revolution on the same day that the film would have opened in kind of in a different world had the revolution not happened. So I became, and the guy who wrote the film was an award-winning journalist and became very, and actually had written the film as a sort of criticism of totalitarianism, but it's a very funny football film. So you'd only like know that if someone told you that. And he ended up being in exile from Hungary after the revolution because he was like too involved with the Hungarian revolution. So he became like seen as too political of a person. So this whole amazing history of this film became apparent. And then I decided to make a piece that would be basically a collaboration between me and the film. So the film is always present. The piece runs the length of the film from the beginning of the film until the end of the film. And, uh, and occasionally the film, and the film's always being played on a small screen next to me, but occasionally it's played on a big cinema screen behind me. Um, and there are subtitles, like sort of some false and some real and several attempts to translate the film. And it's, it's really a piece, you know, it's really a piece of storytelling, to be honest. Like it's quite a complicated piece of storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds very sophisticated. So, uh, you said you're, you're trying to figure out where, uh, this piece is, uh, where like how to show it and where to do it um yeah so how how many have you done some performances of it already or are you still sort yeah of... well i was work, i was working on it for four years so i did actually several works in progress of it and uh it ended up being um a house on fire commission which is like a european union kind of like commissioning body where like a couple of different european partners 
put forward some money and then the European Union match funds the amount of money that those partners have put forward, which probably to an Amer- to an American audience sounds very dreamy, <laughs> like very, very nice. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was, so that was how it was funded. So the premiere, although I say premiere in quotation marks because the show, it really wasn't finished at that point, was in Norway in January. And then I did a little bit more work on it. I did some dramaturgy with my dramaturg's name is Daniel Kitson, and he's like a very, very special uh, stand-up comedian and storyteller who I would definitely recommend you look up if you don't know him already. Okay. Uh, so he did some dramaturgy for me on it and helped me just like fine tweak some of the elements of the story that were need- that needed tweaking. And then I had like another kind of sort of director slash outside eye work on it when we did it in France, because there's a French version of it too, that I perform in French. And then uh, the show was finished in May. So I, so I did the British premiere in May of this year at the Cube Cinema in um, Bristol as part of Mayfest. And then I've done a performance recently at the Cameo Cinema in Edinburgh, which is one of the oldest screens in the UK. It's, it was built in 1914. And it still looks as it did in 1914. So it's really an unbelievably beautiful cinema. It's actually the cinema that's drawn into The Illusionist, if you've ever seen it. Okay. Um, and uh, and then, so I got to do that really recently. That was great. Um, and now I'm just trying to figure out, like, I'm just booking dates for it and stuff. But, yeah, it's a very, I would love to do it. I hope I get to do it at Fusebox. I, I might bug Ron about that soon because it's like, it would be so nice to get to do it there. It's, I think it's like, um, I think it's an easy piece to get on board with because the story is quite interesting and the film is amazing. I never get tired of watching the film. And, so, and the fuse box is that the festival that's in Austin? Is that the one that yeah. you're talking? Okay, so see, I think that's how I found your work was that I was looking at uh, various festivals and things that were here in Texas and and specifically in Austin. And I came across this one, and uh, I think that's where I found your work. I'm I'm pretty sure, and yeah. uh, so well, well, if it's there, uh, then I might be able to get to see that. So that yeah. would be really great. What when is the Fuse Festival? Is that a summer festival or? Yeah, it's a Fuse Box Festival, and it's on in April. But I don't in know. April. Ron, okay. I haven't even asked Ron yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, ask him. Let's get that happening. <laughs> yeah, I'll get that happening. I'm gonna ask him. I'm gonna ask him ASAP. But I would love to. It, I would really love to tour it. I mean. It's like, it's funny because it sort of feels like it was like a collaboration with my grandfather and my family yeah. and also all the people involved and the film and the people involved in the film. And then also all the people who worked on the piece because actually a lot of, it's funny because of all of my work, it's probably the most like a film in that it took the longest amount of time <laughs> to make and to fund and to get together. And also the largest group of people have worked on it of anything I've ever made. So it seems as though it's like my piece because it's just me on stage with the stuff. It's like, how did you do all that work? But actually, you know, like six or seven people put a lot of work into that piece. Yeah. So uh, I feel really grateful because the people who worked on it were amazing and it could never have been what it is without them. Yeah, well, it, lo- it looks terrific, and uh, people can see uh, sort of a trailer that you made for it on on your website. So I would encourage yeah. uh, I would encourage uh, folks to check that out. It's it looks really great. Hope hope that it uh, gets uh, lots of performances and and a wide uh, wide audience. Oh, thanks, John. I hope so too. So uh, the next thing that I have earmarked here to talk about, and we don't have too much more time, but this is just such a topic that's so important these days, especially with here in the States, we're coming up on our uh, presidential election cycle. 
And mm. uh, so these two issues are, are really relevant right now. And I feel like we need to just broach these subjects. And I wrote when I wrote to you earlier um, about this, I, I, I said, I'm not really sure how to even start to talk about these two issues, which are feminism and racism in in the context of what we're talking about here, which is making making art and making work. And um, but I think nevertheless, it's interesting and we should uh, talk about this because uh, some of your work, you know, uh, deals with the issues of racism and uh, yeah. feminism. So it's important to your uh, creative uh, life as well. So yeah. uh, let's talk about feminism a little bit first. It's probably important to point out that feminism and racism are not mutually exclusive. You know what I mean? Like, of course, I mean, for me, they for as a white woman, I I deal with one and not the other. But you know, I think they're like there are a lot of women who are dealing with both, both things at the same time and in a very interchangeable way. And I think that the recent ban on the burkini, you know, that terrible image of those uh, French police officers making a woman strip down on a beach is like a really great example of how the shitty ways in which. Um, those in which basically sexism and racism bolster each other for a lot of people. So anyway, I just wanted to make that to bring that up, I guess. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, um, one of the things that you uh, have somewhere, maybe it's even in your bio where I got the sentence, but it was uh, you say I'm a feminist, which another which is another way of saying I believe that we can't have equality without vigilance. So yeah. let's let's unpack that a little bit. What what do you? What do you mean? What I mean by that is that, unfortunately, our society is always going to default. I know this is depressing to say, but I think it'll always default to some extent to sexism and racism. And so the truth is, like, we've come a long way from, you know, I mean, we've come a long way from probably 300 years ago uh, when it comes to women and their position in society. Um, but if we're not vigilant, if we're not kind of constantly checking ourselves and just being careful, those things are sort of, it's almost like, it's almost like a lazy person who doesn't like working out. <laughs> like they should work out. It's like good for them. But if they don't watch themselves, then they'll start, they'll stop working out. They'll start putting on weight again. And I think that like society's like lazy default position is to privilege white, white straight men. Um, so we just have to be careful that like, we just have to be constantly careful if we want to keep equality up. It's, it's something like working out. It's like an effort that you have to kind of keep checking yourself and checking other people and just like, and just checking in. That's what I mean by like, eternal vigilance and it's not my quote actually i think i can't remember who first said it but it's like yeah the price of freedom is eternal vigilance mm, um yeah and i i completely agree with that and i think that that applies yeah not just to feminism but as i said on my website to any way that people tend to get oppressed yeah. you just have to constantly be checking in to make sure to make sure that the sort of uh, a, a sort of default position of privileging certain people and of, you know, using like hatred and fear and othering doesn't sort of start to seep in there, yeah. basically. Well, suffice it to say right now in the U.S., bo both feminism and, and race, is it, these are two really big issues right now. So I kind of uh, would be curious to just just unpack some of this stuff. So, you know, we have Trump and the conservative right on our political system, yeah. which, you Trump know, is basically the guy telling you to stop working out. He's the guy being <laughs> like, you want the extra donut. Don't, it feels so good. Exactly. Doesn't it feel so good to just like chill out on the couch and just do what you feel like? <laughs> it's totally, 
Exactly. That, like the devil on America's shoulder just being like, isn't it so boring to try to be nice to people? It's exactly what you're saying. It's it's sort of <laughs> like the, you know, it's exa- you, you had a great analogy for it. That's exactly what it is. But saying all the wrong things and talking about race yeah. in a talking about race and in a just at a really unhealthy way inciting even yeah. violence in some in some ways yeah. you know um yeah you know threatening to build a wall <laughs> you know it's just really upsetting to me and, and scary really yeah. really scary actually but this kind of like retreating into our little strongholds is is not just happening here it's happening all over the world uh i wonder i wondered what you felt about like the whole brexit thing and the things that are happening there so what's your perspective uh i mean my person i i voted to remain obviously uh well maybe not obviously but i voted i voted to remain because i believe in the european project and because i also feel like what will be lost and not just from like an economic standpoint though obviously in the short term that's like the really terrible thing but i think that what could be lost in the long term in terms of like just general like peacefulness amongst european nations because i think what people forget is that europe hasn't really been peaceful for that long actually it's sort of it's been peaceful since the second world war but before that there was a lot of fighting and that fighting went on for a long period of time and the European Union has done a huge amount to make sure that rather than people fighting, they like using violence, they use conversation and rules and bureaucracy and stuff. Um, so yeah, I, the reason that I voted Remain was because I believe in in the European project, I guess, politically, mm-hmm. uh, even though I recognize that there are problems around the abuse that happens in any large government organization like there is a lot of bureaucratic abuse that happens and and like wastes of spending and stuff that happen in the eu but i don't think that leaving the eu is what's going to solve that um so yeah so i voted for remain i there was a lot of there was a lot of like racism around why people voted leave but not everybody who voted leave was a racist obviously i think that there is like also a kind of I don't want to use the word class because I'm like so bored of that word in the UK, even though I know it's a thing. But I think that what annoys me about class is that it suggests that these things are like inherent. We can't get away from them. But I think that there is definitely a situation around people who had money and people who didn't have money. A lot of people who didn't have money voted leave because from their perspective, um, it's it it was sort of particularly up in the north in the northern regions of the UK the situation was so bad there. These are like places that used to be mining towns that were really kind of like destroyed by Thatcherism that they were like, you know, we just needed to get better. And they kind of called the government on its bluff and so voted leave and it happened. Um, yeah, but I, I, and I don't necessarily blame those people, I guess. I just wish that I wish that there weren't quite as many, I don't know. I just wish that, like, since Brexit, there have, there's been a huge increase. I heard it was something like 300% increase. Maybe that's an exaggerated number. But there's been a huge increase of racist hate crimes in the UK. It's as though the Brexit vote sort of made it, like, mainstream acceptable right. to it be gives voice, racist. It gives voice to that. And that's the whole thing about yeah. Trump is that... A lot of Trump supporters, it's just an anti-establishment thing. Right. They're just annoyed with the government. Right. And, However, you know, it gives it gives voice to this other thing and is does, really yeah. terrifying to think that that could be, um, that, that those things are given voice and that they're, you know, then given sort of, uh, invitation to 
continue yeah. and and escalate and all of those you know uh, yeah that direction i mean fascism's on the rise that's what's scary <sighs> like i know that sounds like an extreme thing to say but it but it feels that way like it it doesn't feel when you see something like honestly i actually think the way that the way that muslim people are being treated all over the west it's sh- like i understand yes like there are muslim terrorists but they're also those are like extreme people it would sort of be like imagine if all of the people who owned guns in the united states were treated the same way that uh were treated like a specific way based off of the shootings and that would actually to my mind make more sense (laughs) (laughs) um but the majority like the vast 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 majority of muslim people aren't terrorists obviously and people are just the way particularly women muslim women are being treated who never do any terrorist shit really are just being treated so appallingly all over the world and it's just becoming like mainstream acceptable to target women because they're wearing a headscarf or whatever i just find it so depressing and it's fa- it to me it's fascism it's like a move it's a move in the direction of of fascism not depressing is the wrong word enraging i feel like enraged yeah. by it i feel really really depressed and enraged by it yeah. um, and fr- and frightened about it too, because I think that it, it actually fuels the fire of terrorism. Yeah. Like it doesn't make it better. It makes it much, much worse. Yeah. I, um, I totally agree. I guess what scares me is that I don't know what to do about it. Like I don't like, I know. And it's one of those things where you sort of end up in a bit of a bubble when you work, when you work as an artist, because yeah. all of the other people I know agree with me, you know what right, I mean? Like I don't right. talk to people and that's why I did this project drifting, right? It's like a, a kind of, relational project that I did a couple of years ago where I take a right-wing voter on a canoe ride on open waters and challenge us to have a political conversation that was honest that wouldn't turn into an argument and I would do that specifically because I just wanted to know like what are these people thinking yeah. <laughs> like what's going through their minds but then I'd sort of end up avoiding certain topics like I never really talked about immigration that much and I probably should have done more because I think that that's really to me that's sort of the issue right now it's like how are we treating refugees how are we treating immigrants i had such a sad conversation in a cab recently with a really nice man the cab driver and uh we were just chatting and then he told me oh i'm not from here and i was like where are you from and he was like oh i don't know if i should tell you and i was like no no go on tell me and he was like um i'm from syria and i was like why wouldn't i want to know you were from syria he's like i don't know everyone thinks that syrians are like murderers right now and i was like syrians are like some of the biggest victims in the world right now. Yeah. Like these are like people that we like, you know, like the majority of Syrians are like people we really need to be like looking after and caring about right now. I, it's depressing to me that this guy had even like internalized the fact that someone in his cab might dislike him because he's from Syria. I don't know. Well, this this sort of brings us to maybe a point, which is, and you already mentioned, you know, that you're res- you're responding to some of these things with your work. So the biggest mm. question that I feel like I have and uh, is, you know, how you think artists should respond to this, because as you said, we're sort of preaching to the choir in a sense that yeah. a lot of our audiences are, are, are going to be, yes, you know, they're going to be supportive of what we're saying. Those of us that are more, you know, liberal leaning, left leaning, um, and certainly I've done this in my own work. I've been compelled to respond to issues, you know, socioeconomic issues or political issues. But uh, I wonder how you, you feel about sort of the artist's role of, of how should we, should we respond with our work and, and how to do that. And you mentioned this piece about sort of uh, 
trying to reach the other side uh, of, yeah. of the argument. So what's, what's sort of a, if you could speak of it in sort of a broader sense? I mean, I don't know, John. Yeah, me either. I guess, like, to be honest, I guess it's like, I suppose it's like just keep, keep doing it, but don't do it blindly without thinking about its consequences. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I think one of the artists who like, uh, who I really love and respect and who's a good friend is an artist named Tanya Alhuri, and she's Lebanese. Um, she works with Forest Fringe frequently. She's been a friend of mine for a long time. And Tanya makes a lot of work that's sort of somewhere on the border between activism and art, I guess. Uh, actually, there's another artist named, I want to say his name's Isaac Chong, who does similar work that's also somewhere on the border between activism and, and visual art. He's from China. Um, yeah, I, and I, I really respect the kind of work that they're doing because it's a kind of work that sort of informs people, makes them think creatively, but also makes and makes them, and I suppose also like raises awareness. But some of the work that they do could really be seen you know, could get them arrested or could be seen as, as a form of activism. And that there's something appealing to me about that. And I've never really gone there, but I like that idea of like, of using your creativity to plan actions. You know what I like to plan sort of artistic actions. Mm -hmm. I think maybe that's where I might go next on that. If I can like find the bravery and the courage, there is like, you know, I know one thing that I've heard about being particularly in the United States um, about being an ally. If you care about things like black lives matter and you care deeply about racism and you're white, just like use your white body to protect your black friends, you know, like, like get in front of the cop, you know, like if there's like, if somebody's bugging your friend, get in front of the, put your white body in front of the cop because mm. they're not going to treat your body the same way that they'll treat your friend's body. And that's, you know, I think that's like quite an intense thing to do, but also why not, you know, like in the name of humanity, why not do that? We, we haven't really talked so much about uh, this particular issue of skin color being a, a race, you know, racism that is a problem in, in the U.S. But as a white male, you know, I, I've tried to empathize and but I, I really can't possibly know what it feels like to be discriminated against in the way that African-Americans have been discriminated against in this country for as long as they have been. And, um, you know, it's it's hard to also believe that it's still a problem. But it, but as all the recent violence here has shown, it, it is it, it's still a problem. Yeah. And yeah, of course, you know, we but I, I do this piece. I just wanted to tell the, you this one story is I do this piece mm -hmm. with a, a former teacher of mine about wrongful imprisonment and exon exoneration through DNA evidence. So it's not really a, an anti although we're we're against the death penalty. It's not really an anti death penalty case. Uh, um piece but it brings up the issue of people that are wrongly convicted and what and we so we sort of wanted to look at all of this the issue of wrongful conviction and and you know incarceration and then the the idea of these people being innocent in prison and then being exonerated so these were all the issues that we're dealing with well of course you can't separate race from this issue because many of these people are african-american and they were picked up on the street maybe they had a criminal record maybe they didn't the point is they weren't they weren't uh, 
in prison. For, they were in prison for crimes that they didn't commit, and they were yeah. picked up in many cases because they were black, walking on the street or in the area, or what, or they were picked out of a lineup. That's often how people have been wrongfully convicted. Anyway, we wanted to address this issue of race in our piece, and we're both white males, you know. And I was like, well, how can we talk about this? I don't know how we can talk about it and not come off as being, you know, just like, I don't know, untrustworthy narrators or, you know what I mean? I, mm-hmm. So anyway, you you have a, a theater piece that sort of deals with this very issue. And, yeah. I, and I wanted, so I wanted to bring that up. Now I haven't, of course, I haven't seen the play, but I, I did read the review that you linked to on your website from Lynn Gardner uh, at The Guardian. And there's something that she says at the very end of the review, and I'll, I'll read that and then I'll let you, I'll turn it over to you to talk about this play. But um, she says, it reminds, uh, she's speaking of the play here, it reminds that racism is systemic and suggests liberal empathy is insufficient. Change only happens with the recognition and relinquishment of white privilege. So yeah. let's unpack that a little bit uh, and get your reaction to that. And then you, you know, want to talk about the play first, but then I'd love to get your sort of reaction to to this idea. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that part of it is I I saw like a great meme online, which was like, uh, said something like giving up, giving up some of your privilege will feel like being oppressed. Like it's going to feel like things are unjust when you're giving up some of what you have that you have too much of, you know what I mean? When you're sort of like when you're helping redress the, ba- the imbalance. Um, and I think that's really true. And it's something to kind of keep keep in mind, I guess, as, as white people that we shouldn't be, that we need to make sure we're not dominating a conversation because it's easy for us to dominate the conversation, you know? And I think that that's, uh, that's something to definitely keep in mind. Um, I think it's interesting you and your friend wanting to make this piece as, as two white guys, clearly it's important that white people talk about it but not dominate the conversation yeah. and that's what's difficult i guess is recognizing when it makes sense to speak up when it makes sense to listen uh, and when it makes sense to actually try to draw people's attention to someone else's voice and a friend of mine from high school who's black pointed out on facebook when I was talking about this piece, that he felt that it was important for white people to talk about it in what he called closed doors racism situations. So like in a situation where everyone is white. And so then that's when like racism becomes acceptable, you know? And I think that as a woman, I, I feel like the same is true of like closed door sexism situations when like everybody's male. And so suddenly a sort of sexism sneaks into the conversation. Like that's when it's important to to speak up and to like check other people and stuff. Mm. But I think that there are also obviously other situations in which what you really want to be is, is a supporter and an ally and not, and that means, yeah, being, and that means listening and being supportive and amplifying other people's voices and not feeling the need to dominate the conversation with your own, but it's a fucking hard thing to figure out how to do. And uh, I think, but I also think that unfortunately what, ends up happening is that then what's easiest for white people to do is to just stay silent about it out of the fear of being wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's also, that's also not great. I mean, I always like have to check myself on drawing 
on drawing parallels between racism and sexism, because as I said earlier, the two aren't mutually exclusive for a lot of people, and they're actually very entwined for a lot of people who experience both things simultaneously. And But I think that there's, and, all, and also because they're just different, like they're, you know, everything's like, they're not the same thing, they're different. But I do sometimes, like I recently had a conversation with a, a male friend of mine that I really liked, where we were talking about like men, we were just like talking about men who were like quite well-respected poets or whatever. And he was saying how one of these men, he didn't like him that much anymore because of how creepy he'd been to women. Mm. And the guy we were talking about was about 80 years old. And I was like, well, he's 80. Like it's like a different time, whatever. And he was just like, no, I don't care if he's 80. It's not acceptable. I, and he's like, and I don't want to align myself with anyone who's creepy to women anymore. And it was really like, it was nice as a woman to hear my male friend say that yeah. and to see that he had done some of that work on his own. You know, I personally am fine with this, the person we were talking about and like would spend time with them and don't, you know, whatever. I'm reconciled to the fact that he's a bit creepy towards women, but I liked the fact that my friend wasn't. Yeah. And I liked the fact that it was clear that my friend had just like done some like soul searching and some like serious thinking about what he thought was acceptable and what he didn't feel was acceptable. And I feel like, you know, as white people, like the onus is on us to do, to do the same, yeah. basically. Cool. And that doesn't mean dominating the conversation. It just means doing that thinking for ourselves and making sure that we're, yeah, that we're both like listening and amplifying and also in like the closed doors racism situations, calling each other out as and when it's appropriate. Yeah, great. Well, this is a big issue, and uh, you have some great perspective on it, and I appreciate the fact that we could have a conversation about it here, and and I think it's important that we continue to have these kinds of conversations. So thank you for indulging and uh, and for your perspective. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for indulging me on one, and I hope I didn't... I mean, it's hard to say the right thing, yeah. but maybe that's also part of it is like, uh, the fear of not saying the right thing means that you don't say anything. Exactly. And it's, it, it's important. I mean, your silence ends up kind of just like bolstering this shitty system that we're living in that, that we're sort of also silently benefiting from totally unjustly. So, yeah. Well, yeah. we're, we're getting on in time here. And so I want to yeah. move, move towards wrapping up and I always close the podcast with a very simple question. It doesn't always have a simple answer, but it is a simple question. And that is, how does one live and sustain a creative life? Keep going. <laughs> I know that that sounds like a little bit of a, uh, I know that that sounds sort of overly simplistic, but it was probably the best advice someone ever gave me, particularly when I was younger. Um, he just said, just keep going, because there are a lot of people who want to live a creative life in their early 20s and there aren't as many people in their early 30s and far fewer in their early 40s so if you sort of just keep going I mean certainly my experience was that once I got to a certain age I started being able to be paid for what I was doing and to make it sustainable so I think it's just it's just the stamina of being able to keep going and um, and I'd say that my other bit of advice would be don't be afraid to show your stuff even when it's not perfect, because that's part of keeping going. I think yeah. you learn so much from other people's feedback, from other people's, 
you know, other people's thoughts. And you also learn just how to take other people's feedback. Sometimes other people's feedback is useless to you. <laughs> so sometimes it's just about thickening your skin, which is like a huge element, I think, of sustaining a creative life is, is learning when to have a thick skin on something. Um, but yeah, I would say keep, keep going and also don't be, don't be afraid to show your stuff, even when it's, and don't be afraid of negative criticism. Just, just keep going and keep showing it. Great advice. Well, thank you so much, Deborah, for being here. I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, and I hope our conversation continues. And I've got so many different threads to follow here. And uh, so, yeah, thanks for making the connection. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, John. Thanks so much for having me on the show. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at thatjohnlane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.